Good day to our listeners out there and welcome back to another episode of the InSearch podcast. In today's episode, we dive into the field of system and cell biology to look at whether different genes impact the social behavior of fruit flies. Before we get started, please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Now that we've dispensed with all the preamble, let's jump right in. Hello, hello, and welcome back to InSearch, dear listeners. So I'm really excited today. I have uh, Delara Boshi with me and uh, super ex- exciting and interesting research, really different than what I do, um, you know, which are some of my favorite podcasts is when we have completely different research interests um, intersecting on the show. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Delara Boshi. Delara, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming. How was the uh, six minute train ride over? Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> it was good. It was good. Um, so Delara actually lives down the street from us. For those of you who don't know, we record the podcast um, at our home. Uh, and um, generally, sometimes, you know, people come from near and far. Some people come from Montreal. Some people come from the greater Toronto area. But luckily, Delara lives very, very close to us. So um, thank you so much for coming. You know, it's getting it's getting pretty cold uh, in Toronto and uh, it's... Uh, it's, it's nice to have some entertainment that is indoors. All right, Delara. Um, so let's get started. As usual, we'll start with the biggest kind of meatiest question. So what's your research about? If you could tell us in a nutshell, but of course we're going to elaborate on it, but in kind of a, um, a broken down layman's way, how would you describe your research to us? So the core of my research actually revolves around uh, Drosophila melanogaster, which is fruit flies. So my lab focuses on examining social behavior of Drosophila melanogaster. And we are the first lab to show that fruit flies even exhibit social behaviors. So my research revolves around that. However, we added another layer to it. There is a protein within mammalian species known as the limbic system uh, membrane, limbic system associated membrane protein, or LSAM. And before I joined the lab, one of the postdocs was actually looking into the homologs of this protein in fruit flies. And we identified that there does exist a homolog of LSAM or several homologs of LSAMP in Drosophila. However, we want to kind of, we want to narrow it down to see which specific protein not only mimics LSAMP in terms of uh, sequence, but also in terms of functionality. So I'm just going to stop you right there. Uh, could you tell us what a homolog is? So a homolog is a equivalent of a specific gene um, in two different species. So for example, if we wanted to know whether there was a protein, uh, that was similar to, uh, humans in another organism, we would look for its homolog. Say that, um, in humans, we have, uh, this gene, the LSAMP gene. And let me further explain what the LSAMP gene is. So the LSAMP gene, um, is found to be expressed, or the protein is expressed, LSAM protein is expressed in different limbic regions inside of the 
human brain. And within these structures, the role of the LSAM gene is, spans a variety of things. So what we wanted to find out is what proteins, if any, in the fruit fly basically does the same thing, has the same functionality. Okay, got it. Okay, so so you were telling us that uh, the, the, there was a postdoc in your lab that was doing uh, this research and then you bounced off of their research? Correct. So what happened was uh, one of my... Uh, she actually was a PhD student while she was doing this work, but she was my supervisor as a postdoc in the lab. And her name was Jade. And so what happened was Jade was doing her thesis and she had screened a bunch of genes that were similar to LSAMP. And of those different uh, genes, she found she was able to find many of them that had mutations, the lines that existed with uh, specific mutations within each of those genes. And what she did is she ran a social assay experiment. This social assay experiment contained the mutant for whatever gene she was looking at that was potentially the homologue of LSAMP in the fruit fly. And she paired it with, with what we call a reporter. So the reporter fly essentially has this specific insert that illuminates based on a specific protein. So let me just reel it back for a second. So we have what's called the circadian clock. The circadian clock kind of regulates a lot of things. In fruit flies, one of the things that the circadian clock regulates is locomotion, so movement. And in the fruit fly, what we can do is we can kind of force the luminescence in a fly by pairing it with or manipulating a gene that's related to the circadian clock. The specific gene that Jade was looking at was the PER gene. So the PER gene plays a really big role in regulating the circadian clock. And the circadian clock is essentially like a 24-hour body clock. So it fluctuates throughout the, the day and during dark and light cycles. And what Jade found was when she paired these mutants with these um, reporter flies, this caused a a fluctuation in fluorescence, which was a reflection of a fluctuation in the clock. Because our lab had confirmed that social interactions uh, is a behavior that flies exhibit, we could measure the activity of the fly through the interaction they had with the mutants. So when we paired the mutants with the reporters compared to when we paired the reporters with a normal non-mutated fly, we were able to distinguish whether or not there was some social effect that the mutants caused on the uh, reporters. And we could see that based on the fluctuation of bioluminescence. Now, the bioluminescence markers that we used were not created by our lab. There's something uh, that has been in the research community for some time, but we, 
what Jay did was leverage that in order to find out whether or not this any of these mutant mutants that were homologous to the LSAMP gene, whether they caused any sort of social impact. And one of the genes actually stood out the most, and that turned out to be a gene that encodes a protein known as dip-beta. Now, we know several things about LSAMP as is because it's extensively researched um, in the mammalian academic community. We know that one of the biggest effects of the LSAMP is neuronal development. So while uh, the mammal is developing, it actually, LSAMP assists in the communication between neurons and the formation of neuronal networks. So the next step after we identified that this gene in the Drosophila was causing such a strong effect, we wanted to know what was happening intrinsically within the mutant itself that was eliciting such a strong response in its neighbor. And that's really where my research began. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of clarification questions and let's just walk through them together, okay? So what I understand you singing um, is that, first of all, uh, one clarification question that I have for you is that the circadian clock, um, you know, what makes fruit flies an interesting subject of comparison is that both they and mammals have circadian clocks. In fact, all organisms have circadian clocks. Um, it's It plays a large uh, role in regulating a lot of different factors, um, whether it's gene expression, whether it's behavior. So we all have circadian clocks that run on a 24-hour clock. And do both mammals and fruit flies have the LSAMP genes? So we know that mammals have the LSAMP gene. The LSAMP gene has also been, or homologs of it, have been also identified in other species, such as avian species, so different types of birds, and also in, um, you know, different types of primates, so for example, chimpanzees. And the sequences of the LSAMP gene compared to, for instance, uh, the homolog in other primates is very, very close. It's about 99%. That's how similar it is. But beyond mammals, beyond avian species, nobody has looked at whether or not there are any similar proteins or equivalent proteins in, in, in any insects, for instance. So there may, so that's what essentially I was trying to explore further of whether or not this, um, you know, dip beta gene that had this strong social effect, whether or not that was a real homolog of LSAMP. Now, that question is a very, very broad question. And before being able to really tackle that, we had to find out whether or not this gene was also expressed in the brain region of the fruit fly as it is, as LSAMP is in the mammal's brain. Okay, so here's what I hear you saying. 
So, you know, your lab does social experiments and your lab is the first lab to um, kind of look at the social behavior of fruit flies. So looking at the social behavior of fruit, fruit flies and finding that in fact, or at least asking the question of, well, what if fruit flies were also social, um, just like bees? What if this were also the case for fruit flies? Well, of course, then what you would have to do is try to prove that indeed fruit flies are also social beings. And so given that the LSAMP gene um, is known to be, to be linked to social behaviors, if you could find a homolog of that gene um, or a similar gene in the fruit flies, then you could indeed prove that fruit flies are also social beings. Indirectly, yes. Although that wasn't the what we were going for because we have shown through extensive like neural networks there's there's a specific scoring system that our our lab used um i myself didn't do any of these social experiments i did look at behavior but in a different way um but there are specific calculations that go into these neural networks of which our lab has actually published many there's also other ways besides this that besides, you know, just the, the the computing where we have manipulated the flies in certain ways where actually the equation or the network changes. So that in itself, the social interaction in itself has already been established. I wasn't worried about trying to, you know, prove that the, the fly is social. My goal was to see whether or not we could develop the fact that flies are social and see how we can pull in exterior, you know, academic research in order to, you know, ameliorate our findings and really dig deeper and show that we can manipulate flies in a lot more ways than we initially thought. And we can draw maybe even more in-depth clinical information than we already have. Absolutely. So it's, you know, it's more about the robustness of these various previously studied experiments and the and the ways that then like the what's next. Right. So once you have all of this evidence, what can you then do with these different methodologies and different ways of looking at the social behaviors of fruit flies? OK, great. Um, OK, um, so. Let's okay. Let's move on to your research. I wanted to ask you about the bioluminescence, but we could do that in more, I guess, maybe the methods section. So, um, why don't you tell me? Now, let's dive into your research. So, you step in into this, uh, you know, postdoctoral research that had been done by Jade, um, and you pick up. I pick up at a very difficult spot with absolutely zero information. So. I, a, a lot of the times what happens is when you're going into research, there's also, there's a, you know, a large amount of data that's out there about the, the topic. For me, I think at most I had, besides LSAMP, like actually debate information, maybe two or three papers, very, very minimal information. And so much so that it was so generic that I had to really dig as deep as I could to even get any information on deep beta specifically. As I had mentioned previously, it is a part of a larger network. 
you know, and I want to get back to that when we talk about the methods a little bit more, right? And I don't know if you guys do this in the sciences, but in the social sciences and humanities, we call kind of this already pre-built network of research, uh, we colloquially refer to it as standing on the shoulder of giants, right? And, and so this is a really interesting case when you didn't have that recall, right? So I'm really interested to know what it was like for you and the nitty gritty of what it was like to have to... Um, pull out research from two or three articles? It was really hard. As soon as I got on the project, I I felt overwhelmed because I had really felt like I, I had a huge mountain to climb. And the reason for that was not only because there was limited information, but it was because I was going into the whole situation quite blind um right before i had gotten to the lab jade had already moved on to the beginning of the next step which was identifying where debata was expressed besides the mutant that she had gotten for the social assay experiments she had two others one that was supposed to be a control another one that was another mutation uh which i'll which i'll develop further later on but what happened is we had all of these lines that focused on dip beta that was manipulated in some way in different ways and I had to go in and see where the expression changed again no indication whatsoever really of where we're supposed to see this expression I knew it was going to be somewhere in the brain we knew based on the uh DIPs and DPRs network that DIP-beta was a part of, the protein network, that there was potentially going to be this protein expression in the optic lobes of the fruit fly, which is like the visual, uh, the eyes of the fruit fly. But other than that, I had no idea. I I didn't know what structures to expect it in. I didn't know what the line expressions even looked like. I was starting basically at ground zero. And before I'd gotten there, one of the methods we were going to use was we were going to take all of these lines that we had that were related to dip beta, and we were going to use what we call antibodies in order to detect expression. So we went to a bunch of different companies and we got them to make uh, antibodies. And antibodies for us were going to act as a tag. So they were constructed, these molecules were constructed in such a way that when you dissected the fruit fly brain and you, you know, put this, um, these chemicals that contain these antibodies on the fruit fly brain, they were supposed to, under the microscope, show you where debata was located and in which neurons. Wow. And, you know, me being the fresh graduate student that I was I was really excited about it I thought it was going to be great even though I was still nervous about you know kind of walking into it blind and I kept hoping that these antibodies would give us something and I was positive I was really positive until the one year mark hit and it it felt like it was getting more serious and I had absolutely nothing like no results and a lot of it was, you, you go into it thinking, is there something I'm doing wrong? Like it has to be, it has to be me. I'm, 
how could it be that we're paying thousands and thousands of dollars for these molecules to detect this protein? Mind you, not ever been detected before. So these are brand new. But how is it possible that these people are not making a mistake? And I'm, I'm doing it properly, you know, I'm doing the protocols properly. So there was a lot of, you know, trial and error, you know, after every, every time I did an experiment, I was like, this is it, this is going to work. Finally, I'm going to get some sort of expression. And mind you, I did get, you know, some results here and there, but nothing was consistent and nothing really made sense to make it even more complicated these lines that I had, these different types of flies that I had that were manipulated in this specific gene in different ways, they were showing results that didn't actually make sense. For example, we had one line, um, had a specific insert that wasn't supposed to affect the gene expression. It wasn't supposed to affect the way the gene was, you know, behaving. And we got this line from the same paper that had seen expression in the uh, neurons that were in the optic lobe, the eye of the fruit fly. But we couldn't seem to understand how that this line in this, you know, past papers got the answer they got. But at the same time, we were thinking, oh, is it something I'm doing wrong? Is the antibody that I'm using, the protocol I'm using incorrect? Is the antibody not detecting the protein? And Every feature of the protein made it more and more complicated. It's a cell protein, cell membrane protein. So half of it is between a membrane, cell membrane, and half of it is exterior, half of it is interior. Proteins can be folded in very different ways, can block, you know, detection by these little tags. Many, many things, many factors. And what happened was I had to pull on different resources to not validate my findings but to actually help me find something that that made sense in in the midst of all of this right that sounds really difficult (laughs) it was (laughs) (laughs) all right so um so break down your research for us so tell us exactly what it is that the main argument of your master's thesis was, and then we'll break it down from there. Okay, fantastic. So the main purpose was to find out, one, where is dip beta expressed in the central nervous system of the fruit fly? So is it in the brain, central brain? Is it in the ventral nerve cord, which is like the equivalent of the spinal cord of humans kind of? Um, you know, is it in the visual neurons that are attached to the head? That was the first and most important question. I really needed to find out what is the expression pattern of dip-beta. The next was whether or not dip-beta has any sort of role in development. We knew that dip-beta with the other proteins in the network that it's a part of plays some sort of role in neuronal formation as the fruit fly develops. But we didn't know exactly how, you know, it affects development and whether or not if it's manipulated in any way, whether that leads to any, you know, changes on a molecular level 
And consequently, will it lead to a change in a behavioral level? But the second question became more of a distant and distant issue for us to explore because we could not figure out where it was located. I mean, the the tools that we were using just weren't lining up. But the main goal was to see where is dip beta because before we could actually draw any conclusions to see if it's really functionally similar to LSAMP, I needed to be able to say, okay, we know it's in neuron A, B, and C, and we know that neuron A, B, and C, you know, or like the cluster of a certain like area of neurons, you know, is responsible for a certain type of behavior, action, um, regulatory element, whatever that was. It What does it do? What is its, its action, basically? What is its effect? Okay, great. And before we dissect your thesis, um, what'd you find? So for the first year, uh, it, it was nothing. It was really nothing. The, I think the most important takeaway from it was that the antibodies didn't work, really. And that dip beta is very, very low, has very low expression, which makes it very challenging to indicate that most likely in some way, whether direct or indirect, it's related to the circadian clock, which means at different times of the day, it's expressed at different levels. So we're adding all these factors that make it even more challenging um, to detect a beta. And we have these antibodies that God knows why they're not working. And I had to go into different types of experiments. Still some had to do with antibodies. We still used antibodies to detect on protein, the beta protein in, in different types of experiments. But every road that I took either showed up no results, showed up results that made absolutely no sense based on what we already knew. You know, we, we knew, you know, how much the protein weighs. We know that Debeta has, you know, actually the, the gene produces two different types of proteins, not two different types, two different uh, size of the protein. Uh, we knew, you know, how much they weighed. We would do, uh, I would do protein um, experiments to identify if Debeta was present. And I would look at all of my lines and each of them was to show me something different but the results would all come up the same. They would all be the same, which made absolutely no sense. And it wasn't until I did one of my last experiments that I could conclude that one of the lines that they were using, the line that they were using that was supposed to be a control in the paper that I was heavily basing most of my research on was not actually a control at all. It had the insert that was supposed to not affect the gene was actually affecting the gene. There was very reduced expression. Mind you, the control was still better than the mutants, the two different lines that we had, but it was still not a control. It was a mutant, technically. And that was, I think, the big core finding with, you know, on the side, with some of the lines we were able to identify identify that 
expression patterns were a little bit different when you manipulated the gene in different ways. But we couldn't be sure because we trusted that the control was a real control, but it wasn't. So the findings were, we could only eliminate a lot of the unknowns, but not draw a complete, you know, solid conclusion. And that's because you didn't have a control in the end. We had a a general control and a control for um, all of the other lines, but the real line that was meant to show us what real expression looked like wasn't. We, We don't know, right? We don't actually know whether that reflected real expression or not, especially because the antibodies weren't working, so we couldn't confirm it with the antibodies. Okay. So in answer to your question then, that where in the brain or in the, in the uh, central nervous system is dip-beta uh, expressed, you would say inconclusive? Not inconclusive. So definitely it's expressed in the brain because we saw a lot of expression in different neurons with both the mutant, so where dip-beta was supposed to be completely knocked out, like the expression was supposed to be silenced. And we saw expression when there was an, uh, a mutation that was technically not supposed to affect the gene. So we know that it has to be somewhere in the brain. It's more likely that it's in the optic lobes, which are the, uh, the eyes, because the paper, who we can't really, really trust, showed that it's other uh, um, proteins that are associated with it in that network that I mentioned. They are expressed in the eye in different patterns. And we know that based on the fact that we changed debata or sorry, silenced debata in one of the lines, we know that it changed expression. So it, again, in the brain. So we know it has to be somewhere in the brain, but I can't tell you right now, you know, it's going to be in neuron A, B, C, and D. But we can say that it is in the brain. It's definitely stronger in the optic lobe, so the eyes. And based on a little bit of locomotor activity that I measured during my, my thesis, we know that dip beta, when you manipulate it, it does affect the circadian clock. But we just don't know if it's a direct effect, if it's an indirect effect. We don't know why manipulating different portions of the gene, why it results in different uh, locomotor activity, why it results in different, um, you know, intensities of change. So I'm going to give you an example One of the flies, the fly that was from the original um, assay that Jade did, that one shows a very, very significant change in locomotor activity. Huge compared to all the other ones. However, that is 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 supposed to disrupt gene expression, but the other line we had was supposed to silence it. However, silencing the gene 
or knocking down the gene completely doesn't actually have as much of an effect, which doesn't really make sense. But it might be because, you know, the mutations are in different regions. So different regions of the gene probably have different, you know, actions or uh, things that they affect. So I think it's safe to say that, you know, there's tons more research that could be done on this. A hundred percent. And this, unfortunately, at this point, we can't really make any, um, you know, conclusions about functionality, but we can start narrowing down expression. And from there, we can then move on. But a lot of research still has to be done in order to understand just the lines themselves and debata itself. And, you know, there's there's a lot of characteristics about the gene and the protein itself that we have no idea what it does yet. We know that, you know, the, the protein actually is very, very similar structurally to the LSAMP gene in mammals. But, you know, it's very possible the folding is different. The the way it interacts with other proteins is different. So a lot of that still still remains to be known. Okay, great. So basically you're saying that although no conclusive kind of um, uh, findings could be drawn in a 100% kind of way, we're pretty sure that the dip beta are expressed in the brain and specifically in the optic system. So we know that it's in some neurons in the brain. We can't be sure which neurons. Um, And besides the central brain, the optic lobes or the eyes, we can almost be positive they are definitely expressed there. More so, you know, than we can say in the central brain. But whether those patterns that we see, the neuronal patterns that we see are accurate remains to be to be known. We we could only narrow it down essentially. Which is great, you know, for uh, just starting off piloting research. I think that that's a really good place for other people who are doing this research to pick up on. I'm really interested in your second question though. So I know you said that more and more as the project went along, um, because you were unable to, you know, because you were so hard trying to figure out where exactly the dip beta is expressed, you weren't able to um, get as much to the second question, which is, is it related to neurological behavior? Is it um, related to social behavior or in what ways? Um, But did you find any conclusions on that or was that question sort of just abandoned? So the control line that we had, although we couldn't confirm the expression patterns that were shown in the original paper because the antibodies weren't working, based on the other line that we had where the dip beta gene was a knockout, there were differences in expression. And although we couldn't 100% say whether that difference was because of dip beta, it is still possible that those differences in expression are because of dip beta. So to be more specific in the, we'll call it the mimic line, in the mimic line, the control, that expression was 
specific more to the optic lobes or the eyes. And in the knockdown to beta flies, the expression was way different. The expression we saw was in different regions of the central brain and the optic lobe. Not even the expression in the eyes of the knockdown fly was it similar to the mimic fly. So we know that whenever you manipulate the dip beta gene, it's going to affect expression. Now, if it's directly caused the difference in expression, if it's directly caused by dip beta, we still don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe dip beta affects another gene that results in this change. However, we still can hold on to the idea that dip beta may in fact play a role in development, whether it's indirect or direct. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, so let's move to the methodologies section. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about the methodologies that you used. Um, so, you know, experiments, you know, statistical software that you relied on, things like that. So the first experiment that I did was I looked at the different lines that we had that were mutated uh, and I observed their locomotor activity. The locomotor activity that I looked at um, showed that there was variety between the, the flies. And how I measured locomotor activity was we would put uh, these flies from each line into these little tiny tubes and we would put them in a monitor. And the tubes would be aligned uh, in the middle of the monitor. So say there was this monitor had maybe 36 different little holes in it and the tubes would go into each hole. And then in these tubes, we would seal it off on both ends and we would put one fly in each tube. And every time this fly went from one end of the tube to the other, the activity, that activity would be measured. And the reason why we chose locomotion is because it's directly linked to the circadian clock. So that's where I wanted to start off um, after the social assay experiment. So just kind of to reiterate, we would we saw that one of the mutants that were we were gonna look at did uh, affect another fly when paired uh, in a social uh, situation. So we wanted to know, okay, if it's causing uh, a response in another fly, what's happening with its own internal clock? And locomotion was the best way to do this. And we, you know, had all these other lines, so we also measured the locomotion of those as well. And that gave us an idea that if we manipulated the beta gene in different ways, that it would affect the locomotion. So besides locomotion, the other experiments were heavily dependent on the antibodies. So we had three different sets of antibodies from three different companies, and they each would tag a specific sequence uh, in the protein. So the protein dip beta actually has three what we'll call sections that are pointed uh, exterior of the cell. So they're the, on the external part of the cell and it helps communicate with other cells. It's a transmembrane protein and a portion of the transmembrane protein has this extracellular component to it. And 
So each antibody was programmed, we'll say, to target a specific sequence. So one was, you know, um, at one part of the extracellular, you know, region, one was closer to the uh, portion that um, crossed the actual membrane, one was, uh, you know, targeted eight to six parts of the, so the protein contains sequences, so, you know, eight to six sequences of the protein. It, it, it's quite uh, in-depth for each of them, but the most important thing was there was variety between these. They, they all targeted a different region on the same protein. And besides um, experiments that had to do with actually staining the brain with these tags, we also stained what we call uh, membranes. So we performed uh, a Western blot. So what we would do is we would extract protein from the flies, from the fly brain, so instead of going ahead and dissecting it like we would and staining it in little tiny wells, we would uh, mix and extract protein with different chemicals. And we would put these uh, protein extractions in little wells. And we would run these proteins through a gel. And what that, what would that would do is it would separate the proteins based on size. And then once that... Uh, membrane, it's like a jelly membrane, is, um, you know, the protein has ran through it. We use the same antibody and we stain the, the membrane. And what that's supposed to do is it's supposed to identify the antibody will tag the protein on that membrane at the size of the protein uh, that it's matched to. So that was another way. We thought, you know, maybe... Um, one brain won't show us enough information or, you know, dissecting brains won't. Maybe we should collectively pool in all the protein from the entire uh, fruit fly and see if we can detect something on a membrane. It's just an alternative way of protein detection. That resulted in bands. So you see different bands on the, on the gel membrane. However, it still made absolutely no sense because all of the flies showed the same bands with one of the antibodies. The other antibodies didn't even work. And one of them showed similar similarities across the board. Now, when we stain a membrane, if there's differences between groups and we're looking at one protein, we should see differences in the intensity of the band, for instance. You're saying that you stained the brains of these flies. Did you literally stain the brains of these flies yeah actually i did so it took me one whole month to just learn how to dissect a fruit fly brain then once i learned i would take the brains we would put them in specific solution and we would put them in these little baskets they were very very tiny and they had little holes at the bottom so you know chemicals could drain through and you know these these brains would go through a series of what we call washes. So they would be washed. And then we would put in the antibody, the tag. And then to be able to see the actual uh, fluorescence of that tag or see where that tag has landed, you would have to add a fluorescent tag, essentially, so that would attach, it would be called a secondary antibody and it would attach to the first antibody that you put. And you would then um, 
do a several other washes, other chemical, you know, um, reagents you would use and then you would mount these brains onto little slides and you would put them in a microscope and then you would see what what was happening and you could only see it because of that second fluorescent tag how did you dissect the brains so (laughs) difficultly (laughs) um what you would do is you set up a little petri dish has a solution in it you pin the fly down And you begin by removing its proboscis, which is kind of like its nose slash its tongue. And you would just take it out. And then once you remove that proboscis, there is a opening and you would put two tweezers in the or like forceps um, in the, the opening and you would slowly break the exoskeleton of the fly, which is both kind of like, uh, a hard exoskeleton and it's also very soft at the same time it's very weird and you would have to make sure you didn't stab your forceps right through its brain because if you did then your (laughs) images would just be awful and so you would have to you know then remove all of the excess there's also like different sort of like kind of bag looking fat pockets that you would have to remove and then clean it up and and put it aside I just want to let the listeners in here on, uh, you know, I want to bring them in on what's uh, happened while we were having these conversations here is that uh, as Delara has been telling us about her experiments with fruit flies, one has uh, just died in her drink (laughs) and, uh, you know, somewhat uh, fortuitously, one might might say, um, kind of stuck it back to Delara for having (laughs) dissected uh, their brethren. Unfortunately, I have murdered a lot of flies in my lifetime. Um, And I'm sad to say that one has just uh, passed away in my drink. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. Um, And uh, any other methodologies that you, any other experiments or methodologies you want to draw on? So after uh, we we kind of got weird results with the antibodies on the Western blot, so the gels we ran and... Uh, you know, staining the brains as is. What we decided to do is I took samples, I extracted protein samples, and we went ahead and uh, did mass spectrometry. So that was an external thing. We would prepare protein samples. We would just extract proteins. um, And we sent it off to a lab to and they would basically uh, run it, this, you know, sample through some machines. And they would provide you a list of all the proteins that were in that sample. So at this point, we were just, we just wanted to know, is dip beta even in the sample that we're running? And of course, dip beta showed up in none of them. We did a lot of different ones. We also tried, um, we, most of my research was actually, actually looking at adult fruit flies. But what we did is we even sent in, you know, fruit flies at the larval stage. And nothing, dip beta was never in any of the samples. And that can be attributed to the fact that debata might just be in such low abundance compared to all of the other proteins that it just didn't show up especially because we were getting proteins come up that were very very common um so that could be one of the reasons and at that point we just stopped we decided that protein was not the what we wanted to detect that it was the antibodies were not working we should just stop with protein detection and we should see that whether Debata is even being 
transcribed, um, which is, is the RNA sequence. So we have DNA and one strand of DNA is RNA. And eventually that RNA gets transcribed into protein or translated and gets transcription into RNA and then translated into protein. And we said, okay, forget about the protein. Let's take a step back. Let's look at the RNA. And we looked at the RNA and we actually found out through um, a series of other experiments, I would just extract um, RNA and do uh, qPCR with it. It's a method of um, identifying using little um, primers, also very similar to tags. They, they detect a sequence. And we found that finally we found some sort of result that transcription was decreased in all of the mutant lines. That's where we found out, you know, the control line did have a significant decrease, although it had still more uh, expression of D-beta than the other two mutants. There was still a significant loss compared to controls. And we found out that the knockdown or silence line that we had was actually not, sorry, it was not a knock out, but it was a knock down because we still had some expression, which that line was not supposed to have whatsoever. And it was, the expression level was very similar to the last mutant, which was also still expressing very, very like little expression, but there was something still there. Okay, great. Super interesting. Um, and then, so when you, these experiments that you ran, um, you would take the results back from the lab. And what did you do with those results? Did you analyze that data as is, or did you then put that data into another program and analyze it that way? Or So for the first set of experiments, the ones that were antibodies, it was visual. It was all visual. So I would go to the, the microscope, put my slide under the microscope, you know, look at the different parts of the brain, and I would come up with basically nothing. Um, I spent hours and hours just looking through the, the stacks. So basically, you have to look at the, the brain from, like, uh, from anterior to posterior, posterior to anterior. So you're looking at, at uh, slices, essentially, of the brain. And I would find nothing. So for that, it was all visual. Similarly, uh, for the Western blot where it was the gel and we were running the protein bands and visualizing protein bands, that was more or less visual. We would just put it, we would coat it with a specific type of uh, reagent and we would put it in a machine and the machine would uh, kind of spit out a black and white image. So it would just be uh, a ladder, which is which would have you know the different sizes of the proteins and that would give you an indication of where your protein would fall and for that it was just a black and white you know just uh kind of like a bunch of different lanes and then just uh lanes with either black or nothing and for the other ones the only um kind of analysis that happened in terms of a, a computer doing uh, an analysis was when we were looking at locomotion. Um, we have we use MATLAB, which is like a complex computing um, machine, and that kind of takes in the locomotor activity 
through these devices and translates it into data points. And then we take those data points and make graphs with them and, and compare the, the mutants to the controls. As for the last one where we were looking at uh, RNA, uh, that was we would fill these little tiny wells and we would put it in a qPCR machine and the the wells would match the you know the little holes in that machine and then that would output uh, specific um, metrics, specific values and then from that we would just again score that score those values. Uh, compared to to the controls. So interesting. And I think, you know, one of the things that kind of stands out to me as you're saying all this is that researchers have this, there's this imperative to produce, right? To find something, to experiment, to prove, validate, right? But there's something to be said about the methodological virtue of null results, right? And so it's so interesting to me that in retrospect, you're recounting this here at InSearch of, you know, you kept going back to this lab and you kept finding nothing. You kept finding nothing day after day, which I'm sure must have been very anxiety inducing. But it led you to understand that your your control, the very kind of um, untested um, experiments that you were supposed to have, wasn't a control after all, right? So null results. And, and even if it wasn't so, right, even if your experiments just ended up, even if you just didn't find the dip beta, would that mean that the research wasn't interesting? Or would it just mean that, you know, you ask these research questions and you would have a new set of research questions that emerge from your null results, right? I think the biggest thing in academia, especially when you enter, is that you have to produce results. Something that directly gives you an answer but I didn't realize this until I finished my master's and I thought well I actually did show something it's not that I showed nothing but they make you feel as though null results are no results and you take on that burden that it's it's your fault but science is such an unpredictable thing anything really can be happening on the molecular level and there's very very little that you can do people do years and years and years of experiments and then they finally find something but it's just because you have to explore or look at the the problem in a different way it's not because uh the method is wrong necessarily it's that it just doesn't necessarily always suit that question exactly right so here i think one of the things that we try to do here at insearch is to try not to think about um, something as not to equate something null or a result that is null with being unimportant, um, but itself kind of instigating a new set of questions, right? And that's why we take methodology seriously too. That's why, you know, I ask you these questions about your methodological research, no matter how frustrating it was for you. I think it's important for other listeners to kind of um, understand what goes on behind the scenes before knowledge is produced and how researchers arrive there to begin with. All right, so um, let's move to the literature review um, or the conversations uh, in more layman's terms that you're that you're contributing to, right? Like, so we know that you didn't you didn't have much to draw from. Um, 
but but uh, probably in a in a larger context, what would you say? What conversations are currently going on in your field that that this experiments and this research con- contributes to? I definitely think that the already existing research that's been focused on looking at the DIP and DPR network, which Debeta is a part of, is definitely underdeveloped. And I think that the initial findings is something that we need to look back into and really analyze whether this previous research is valid or not. And I definitely don't think it negates from the fact that these proteins do play a role uh, in neuronal uh, formation during development. But I think the, you know, the parameters of that development are, are still to be determined. And that's just on the, the fruit fly level. I think that this protein debeta, this gene, aside from its network, might actually be a lot more significant than we, we even think it is now. And once we really determine what it does, the functionality and really where it is in the brain, I think it'll add to the bigger research related to LSIMP. So LSIMP has been studied extensively in mammals, but its, you know, its mutation does have significant consequences. So what if we could fast track that in the fruit fly and potentially help any disorders that are related to memory, learning, um, cognition in, in mammals? And I think that's way, way, way down the line, but it's possible that we could get there faster if we were able to just focus on fruit flies and see whether or not we can really manipulate them enough in order to give us results that parallel what we see in mice, for example, when we are um, mutating the LSAMP gene. Right. So, you know, what, what I hear you saying is that we have this incredible resource in front of us that we should really capitalize on, right? Because doing research is expensive and it takes time. It's tedious. It's, uh, you know, uh, resource um, draining. And so if we have the potential to observe something similar that we do in mammals to fruit flies and we can get there faster, then, you know, the, the sky's the limit. We have so many possibilities in front of us. Why not seize them? Because they could potentially lead to, um, you know, uh, benefits for humankind. Exactly. And again, at this stage, it's too you know, early to say that we can definitely, you know, um, utilize the fruit fly for this kind of research. But once you really are able to validate a specific uh, gene and its functionality, the possibilities are endless. And the way we can manipulate a fruit fly is more not only time effective, but at times also more ethical in ways because the the process of, you know, um, having, you know, mice and growing, like, you know, getting them to develop and they're separating them from their mothers and it gets a little more complicated, more ethics come into play. And I mean, of course, there's still ethics 
um, related to, to fruit flies, but we can really overcome a lot of challenges that we face with mice, even on a, on a, you know, experimental level, um, again, in terms of time span. Absolutely. And so finally, you know, I guess some of some of what you've already said is in, in, encapsulated in this the, the answer to this question as well. But what are your practical uh, desired outcomes for this research? What what do you hope to achieve? So I've I've moved on. I'm, I'm done with this level of academia. Um, but for down the line, whoever continues this this project in, in the lab I was working in, I, I really do hope that we do conclude, you know, that dip beta does play a large role in a bigger system within the organism. And I hope that we can identify that it is very similar to LSAMP and that we can go ahead and, and really, you know, work on more issues that impact humans, I, I hope that this could lead to a clinical clinical research um, because I think it, it would be beneficial on a, on a much larger scale than just knowing whether this gene, you know, affects the, the behavior of a fly. Absolutely. Well, Delara, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I am, you know, fascinated with your research. Um, I can't wait to talk to you more about it. I can't, um, I'm sure that everybody else uh, that's been listening in is equally fascinated and probably has a lot more questions for you as well. Um, but you know, unfortunately we only have an hour. So thank you so much for giving us your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and please do join us again, uh, for more, maybe elaborated version or different research projects as they come up. Thank you so much for having me. That just about does it for today's episode. Once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us on the InSearch podcast. If you'd like to share your own original research on the program, please reach out to us through the link in the show notes. As always, we love to hear from you, so tweet us at podcastinsearch or email us at insearchpodcast at gmail.com. By now, you should know how much we love your feedback, so please don't forget to rate and review us in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Doing so helps us reach a wider audience, share knowledge, and make the world a better place. Consider subscribing so you don't miss the next episode where we talk about decolonizing environmental conservation research. Until then, stay curious.